0: wrote me in inflicting one of my songs on you, and the years have not been kind to my voice. Like everything else, gravity takes its toll, right? Uh, everything, all those high notes I used to hit, nope, no more. And uh, <laughs> But I just want to share a little simple ditty, okay? Um, I have a lot of unfinished projects, uh, and I probably will never get finished with some of them. One of them was to write a Christian musical way back there. And I had this wonderful idea way back there about a Christian coffee house was the setting. When's the last time you saw a Christian coffee house? Well, that's passe. And then it was a Christian internet cafe. And now that's passe. So I don't know. The the setting was this uh, group of college kids that were all Christians working in this coffee house or cafe and this atheist guy would come in with his laptop to get an internet connection and do his work. And so over the course of time, the staff there at this cafe had a chance to talk to him and share their faith with him, and he would challenge them and got songs back and forth. So that's, that's the idea. That's as far as it's ever going to get. I've got some music, but, but anyway, this song I thought I'd share with you tonight is sort of, uh, as his waitress is telling him, about his need to bow the knee to Jesus, to bow to him as Lord of his life, to yield to him his life. This guy is replying, this doesn't sound like freedom to me, this sounds like slavery. And she replies, yes, it is a surrender, but it's a blessed surrender. And so that was sort of the seed thought, that's the hardest part of writing the song, is getting the. Seed thought, and then you can sort of build on that, and that's where this comes from. It's called Blessed Surrender. <clears throat> I hope I can get the message across to you.
1: It's a blessed surrender when your war with Christ has ceased. Once a rebel and offender Now conquered by your king To receive the pardon tendered His blood bought amnesty It's a blessed surrender Victory through your defeat It's a blessed surrender When you give upon yourself To forsake that hope so slender And to trust in Christ instead to put on his robe of splendor and lay aside your filthy dress It's a blessed surrender When you enter into rest For the one you Your dearest friend Embrace by faith the mystery To lose to him you win It's a blessed surrender when you turn and come back home fleeing all your former masters now to bow to christ alone unto him you It's a blessed surrender that truly sets you free. It's this blessed surrender that truly sets you free.
0: So good to be with you tonight and to see so many, uh, I was going to say, old faces, getting older faces, and uh, meet some new folks as well. In case uh, we have not met before, my name is Mark Webb. My wife Paula is here with me, and uh, we are, well, it depends on what type of the year you're talking about. We're from Olive Branch, Mississippi right now. That's just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. That's our winter quarters, and we sort of travel. That is home base. In the summer months, we're out in Wyoming. We have a ranch out there and love it out west, And uh, but we're not tough enough to be out there in the winter months, trust me. Uh, it's not a place for old folks in the winter. But uh, we are so glad to be with you, Wayne and Donna, dear friends. I, I couldn't remember, I think somewhere around 1980 was where we first uh, touched base with one another and have known the Walker family over the years and Uh, Love fell in love with them. What's not to love about these guys and their family, watching them grow up and marry and have kids of their own? It's been a good good time and glad that. It's not often you can talk about people you've known for what's close to 50 years now, that you're still friends with people. You know, most of them uh, have dropped you by then. Some people just have no taste, so they have (laughs) remained our friends over the years. (laughs) Uh, and we have certainly enjoyed their hospitality. We constantly drop in and uh, get the, spend a few choice hours. They have made it out west. Uh, we have an off-grid cabin out there that they've been able to stay a few nights and enjoy. And we hope to do that again this coming summer. Lord willing, all goes well. I uh, was explaining that I, uh, Paul and I are coming up on our seventh wedding anniversary. Can't believe seven years. If you know our story, both our spouses passed away with cancer. Her, her spouse was my best friend, and uh, we knew one another vaguely uh, through that connection. But when our spouses died, it uh, took a while, a couple of years, but the Lord eventually brought our lives together and married, and we've had a wonderful, wonderful time. So, seven years coming up, and uh, I Six years ago, I retired as pastor in Grace Bible Church there in Olive Branch, Mississippi, uh, right outside of Memphis, I mentioned. And uh, the new pastor, a young fellow named Brian Daniels, he's late 30s, Uh, he and I are dear friends, and he has done a fabulous job uh, coming in there and taking over for me, and I'm thrilled to have him there. A lot of pastors don't say that, they say nobody ever speaks well of the predecessor or the successor, but I can say in his case he has my unbridled support and nothing but praise for his ministry. I appreciate him. So if you ever get down to Memphis, do an Elvis run, you know, come down to Graceland, uh, come on out to Sovereign Graceland, uh, Grace Bible <laughs> Church, and uh, we'd love to have you there. If you come in the winter, we might just see you there. Summertime? No, you're going to have to come out west. and. Uh, rendezvous there. Well, this is going to be a little different from perhaps what uh, I've done in the past and probably what you've had in a meeting like this because we have these three sessions and I hope that you can make them all. I hope that you'll bring your Bible with you because we will be doing a lot of looking at scripture. I want to deal with the topic of who is Jesus, specifically asking the question, is Jesus God. Now I'm assuming I'm probably preaching to the choir. You probably have a background similar to mine. I grew up one of my earliest memories of being in the old Southern Baptist Church down in Texas singing Holy, Holy, Holy. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Wonderful hymn. So the idea of the Trinity, of Jesus Christ being the second person of the Godhead. I don't know when I learned that. It was just always there. It was just something you grew up with. You knew it almost by instinct. But we live in a very different day today. And although doctrinally, if you're going to be challenged on that point, of course it might be by a Muslim. That's possible. A Jehovah's Witness. That's possible. But more than likely, it's just someone who's either an atheist or an agnostic. You get on the internet today and do any search on any religious topic, sooner or later you'll find someone scoffing at the idea that Jesus is deity, that Jesus is in fact divine, Uh, almost ridiculed in many circles out there. Now, you probably have had more encounters out there than I have. But it's becoming very fashionable to attack the divinity of Jesus Christ. So that's my question. If you had to defend the divinity of Jesus, how would you do it? Could you do it? You get into a conversation with an agnostic who says you just have this myth of Jesus as a God, come on, give me a break, how would you unfold it? Now, there's a lot of ways of doing that, and my plan, I'm going to give you a little road map here tonight. Uh, We have three sessions together. Tonight, I want to look at the evidence from the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, and so forth. I want then tomorrow morning to look at the evidence from the apostolic authors in the New Testament. How do they present who Jesus was? And then tomorrow afternoon, after we've eaten and you're half asleep, we will finish up with Jesus' own testimony about who he was. Who did he say he was? So that's the roadmap. Tonight, we're looking at the Old Testament. Tomorrow morning, the New Testament from the apostles' point of view, and then tomorrow afternoon from Christ himself. Okay? Roadmap? Got it? And tonight, even though we are going to be looking at it from the Old Testament, most of you would probably think, well, I think I know where you're going. I've heard this a hundred times. Uh, you know, that you're going to look at the prophetical statements of the Old Testament. You're going to look at the typical rites and ceremonies of the law that point to Christ you're going to come from that perspective. Well, let me tell you, I'm coming from a different angle and I trust many of you have never really thought about this whole topic from this angle before. That's where I want to go tonight. Let me have you begin and we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture. You're going to have to read quickly, okay? And I'm an old southern boy. We talk slow and now, that's because we think slow, but uh, tonight I'm going to have to kick it into high gear to cover the material I have. So y'all hang on, get on your belt, strap, strap yourself in, and let's go. Exodus chapter 33. We're going to begin here. Exodus chapter 33. The Israelites have left Egypt. They're on their way to Canaan, and they are at the moment at Mount Sinai. We're going to start reading in verse, oh goodness, where do we start? I hate. Let's just start in verse 1. Get a running jump, okay? Exodus 33, verse 1. Read a section here. The Lord said unto Moses, Depart, and go up from here thou and the people whom thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swore unto Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, saying unto thy seed will I give it. And look at this very closely. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, these, these various groups. Let's go down to verse 7. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without, outside of the camp, and far off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, this is not the tabernacle that you will read about them building a little later. This was an original uh, tent of meeting that they had just outside the camp, as you see here. And it says, It came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was outside the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle, that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar you remember your Sunday school lesson on the Exodus? You remember that cloudy pillar? We see it first back there at the Red Sea when it moved between Israel and the Egyptians. You recall that? And then, of course, you see it later in the wilderness wanderings, this fire by night, pillar of fire, and this cloudy pillar by day accompanying the Israelites as they're marching through the wilderness. Here, here we see it. It came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle that the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses and all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And the Lord spoke unto Moses face to face. I want you to, uh, a little background of the Hebrew here, the word Lord in in your version, uh, almost every modern version now, you'll see that word in little capitals. And that is your clue when you see that, that this is translating the name of God. Uh, For a long time, we always said Jehovah. Uh, The scholars have come pretty much to a consensus today that it is probably closer to Yahweh. So I'm, you know, being a man of my time, a avant-garde guy, I'm adopting that pronunciation. We really don't know for sure, because the Jews, remember, they won't even read this term. When they get to this term, they say Hashem. That means the name. They will replace the word Lord, as they read the Old Testament, with the word Hashem, the name. Okay, so we think Yahweh is pretty close to the original pronunciation. The Lord, Yahweh, notice, spoke unto Moses face to face. That's another Hebrew word, panim, panim, and we're going to see it several times in this passage. The Lord, Yahweh, now this is the word for God, spoke to Moses face to face. As a man speaks unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp with his servant Joshua the son of Nun. A young man departed not out of the tabernacle. So is anybody seeing a problem here? Yahweh speaks with Moses panim to panim. Face to face. Let's go on down a little further. Well let's just keep reading. Keep plowing. Moses said unto the Lord... See, thou sayest unto me, bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast found grace in my sight. Now therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, and that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. Okay, that's Moses' request. Here's God's reply. And he said, Yahweh, my presence It's the same word we had a moment ago, panim, that was translated face. Here it's translated presence. My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he, that is Moses, said unto him, that is Yahweh, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up from here. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Here's the good part. Verse 18, And he, that is Moses, said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he, that is Yahweh, said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee and I will proclaim the name of the Lord, Yahweh, you see, before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he, that is Yahweh, said, Thou canst not see my ponim. Thou canst not see my face. For there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. He covers me there with Is Y'all sing that hymn? Okay. It's where it comes from. I will cover thee there with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back, but my... Hanim, my face, shall not be seen. Uh, anybody besides me see something strange going on in this text? On the one hand, you have Moses speaking with Yahweh face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And then you turn around. When Moses asks to see God's glory, God says, no man can see my face And live, It would be too much for you. You would drop dead if you got the full load of who I am and my glory. So I'm going to put you in this cleft, this hole, maybe a cave in this rock. And I'm going to cause my glory to pass by. And you want to read on into chapter 34. You can see when that happens, God's glory passes by. But you cannot see my face. But you can see my backside. You can't take it all, you see. You can only see part of me. Now, this causes all kinds of questions to arise. And it goes back to something the Greek philosophers were wrestling with. How do you have this God, this... And they had come to the conclusion, I'm talking about Socrates, Plato, these early Greek philosophers, that God was this infinite spiritual being, this invisible God... In some cases, they would refer to him as the Agnoston, the unknowable God. How do you know this God? How does this God interface, good computer term these days, how does this God interface with you and I, with man? Or with creation, for that matter. He is a God of pure spirit and yet creates the earth. And if you know anything about their philosophy, you know that they had this crazy theory that this God, he had these cosmic, well, belches or burps. And these burps were different entities, actual emanations of God. And in most systems, they had 28 of these cosmic burps. This one burps out, this one, and this one burps out till you get far enough away from God and that God is the one who created the earth. That's where sin comes from. In their view, sin is physical. Anything physical is inherently sinful. That's why you're sinful, they said, because you've got a physical body. So that's where your sin's coming from. And it wasn't that God directly, directly created the earth. It's way down there on the end. Each burp gets further and further away from God, and the last one is the one who did the creating. Okay, I don't want to bore you with all this Greek nonsense. But you see, they recognize this problem. you got a problem when you're trying to communicate and reveal yourself to human beings, and every time you... Try to have a conversation with them. They drop dead on you. That's what he's saying. You will not be able to stand in my presence and live. So how does God then communicate himself? Well, you begin to see the, the use of what we would call a mediator, the mediated presence of God. In other words, you can't take the unfiltered Revelation of God. You would die. But that there is some medium, some means that God uses to mediate his presence. I mean, this is infinite God. You know, if you've done any study of theology, you know that what the theologians, when they put all the biblical data together, they come up with this description of this God who is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's not located in one spot. That's why you can't ever get away from God. He's already where you're going. He never leaves where you left. He's always there. He is omniscient. He knows everything, nothing hidden from him, and he is omnipotent. He's the almighty, all-powerful God, this infinite God. How does he communicate to us? And it begins to be clear as you're seeing here, there's something going on here. There is God being invisible. We have a number of texts in the New Testament tell us that. He's invisible, and yet Moses is seeing somebody, right? He's seeing a depiction of the glory of God, this bright cloud, this glowing Imanation is one of the words that he's used to describe it. There's something that he's seeing. There's something he's hearing. Right? So what in the world is going on? It even gets, uh, well, let me just cut to the chase here for the sake of time. And I can already see we're in trouble. So <laughs> bear with me. Theologians call this, by the term theophany. Have you ever heard that term? A theophany is an appearance of God. Theos for God and theos for for light or apparition. So it's a visible depiction of God who is invisible. And theologians coined that term to describe this phenomena we're seeing right here. It's a theophany. Some theologians, and I would join their ranks, call it a Christophany. Because I think, as we will see as we're studying this tonight, this phenomena that you see over and over again in the Old Testament, is actually not a visible depiction of the Godhead, the first person. This is not actually seeing God the Father. This is seeing him through the revelator of God the Son. Through the mediation of the Son. That there's another being. Well, being is probably not a good word. Let's use the word we're familiar with. There's another person here. Who is of one essence with the Father. One being who is depicting to us, manifesting to us, God who is invisible you're seeing an image of an invisible god and when you turn to the pages of the new testament i'm going to cheat here that's who christ is he's the image says paul in colossians of the invisible god so you're seeing a representation of yahweh visible you can stand face to face you can talk you hear him Yet notice this can't be what we call God the Father. It must be what we refer to as God the Son. Now that's where we're going with this. But I want you to just look with me at the evidence. And this is, this is just one of several places. Turn back just a little bit. Exodus 24. I'm hoping uh, I can see some gears moving in your head. And some lights maybe... Not coming on, but flickering at least, okay? I'm going to blow your mind here, I hope, here. Uh, Look at Exodus 24. In verse 9, Then went up Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. The invisible God, they saw the God of Israel, And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in its clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand, back to that thing, no man can see me and live. But God didn't lay his hand on them, and they saw God and did eat and drink. Not just Moses, not just Joshua, but now we have Aaron, Nadab, Abihu the and the elders, the 70 elders, they all see God. Let me ask you a question. What were they seeing? Who were they seeing? No man can see God and live. So who are they seeing? This is not the only description that we find we also find many places where there is a particular person, we already ran into him in that text we read a little while ago, that God was going to send, remember, his angel before them? There's an expression we run upon in the Old Testament over and over again called the angel of the Lord. Now let me warn you, that the word angel is a tricky word. In Hebrew, it is the word malach. Malach, uh, For instance, the book of Malachi is malach. kai. It's my angel, my, that's literally what the word means. The word angel in Hebrew means messenger. It's similar to the word angelos in Greek in the New Testament, same thing means messenger in other words it's a functional description not an ontological description you know what I mean by the ontology of something the nature of the being in other words angel is a category of function it's what something does so when I say that we're talking about the angel of the lord I'm not embracing the Jehovah's Witness heresy that Jesus is an angel you know the first created being so forth no, but we're talking about the function. It's a job description, you see, of what something does. You have to discover from the context what kind of messenger. In the New Testament, we have an example. John the Baptist was in prison, and he sent his messengers to Jesus. You know the passage, asking, are you here, or should we wait for another? In Greek, it's the word angel. He sent his angels to Jesus. But clearly, the context means these are not what we would call angels by the ontological definition. These are human messengers that he's sending to Jesus, his representatives, okay? This is an example. So when I use the term angel of the Lord, I'm using it in that other way, the functional definition. And God has already said, I'm going to send this angel in one other place here in Ephesus, uh, Exodus that we didn't look at. He says, I'm going to put my name in him. And you're to fear him, this angel. And to put his name in him is basically saying, I'm putting my attributes in this angel. You are to view him as me, you see. Well, this is what we keep seeing over and over again. Let me give you an example out of Genesis. Let's go back in time a little bit. And by the way... I know growing up, nobody ever taught me how to think of time in the Old Testament. I must have been absent that day in Sunday school. But um, just to give you a rough way of thinking about the time frame, Abraham lived roughly 2,000 years before Christ, okay? Give or take. That's approximately 2,000 years. 500 years later is basically the time of Moses. Okay, 500 years later at 1000 BC is the time of David and 500 years later, thats say 5000, 500, you got Abraham at 2000, Moses at 1500, David at 1000, 500 years after him is basically the time of the return of the captives from Babylon back was Zerubbabel's day, rebuilding the temple and then of course five year, 500 years after that you have Jesus. So that's just a rough way you can sort of keep track of time. So we were at Moses' time frame, 1500 B.C., okay? We're going to jump back 500 years to the time of Abraham, okay? We're in Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Notice... We have a description here that the Lord, and in your Bible you're going to see the little caps, Yahweh, the Lord appeared. Now there's your problem. If God is invisible, invisible spirit, how did he appear? But he appeared unto him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. This is Abraham, that's the he here. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and, lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Now notice we got three guys showing up at the tent of Abraham. And in verse 3, he says, My Lord, if I now have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet. And rest yourselves under the tree. Now notice these are tangible guys. They got feet you can wash. Okay. This just gets more bizarre the further we go here. So hang on. I will fetch you a morsel of bread. And comfort ye your hearts. After that you shall pass on. Okay. So notice uh, he gets Sarah on the stick in verse 6. To cook up some food for these guys. And he goes and kills one of the. Uh, out of the herd a calf. Uh, to cook it up for them. So here you have these three men that have come to visit Abraham at his tent. This is when, down in verse 9, they're asking, where is Sarah? Well, she's she's back there in the tent. And uh, this, one of these individuals says, I'm going to certainly return to thee according to the time of life, and Sarah thy wife shall have a son. Now remember, Abraham is 99, and Sarah is You're younger, you're fixing to have a son, you're having a child. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. It ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have become old shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And the Lord, did you notice the little caps? Who's he talking to? Yahweh. The Lord said unto Abraham, why, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, I, I, shall I of a surety bear a child when I'm old? Is anything too hard for the notice for Yahweh? At the time appointed, I'm going to return and you're, you're going to have a son. And then Sarah denies that she laughed and so forth. So notice verse 16, the men rose up from there and looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them. Let me give you the Reader's Digest condensed notes. You had three personages show up. One of these who is carrying on the conversation with Abraham is identified as Yahweh, right? Now all three of them get up to go, and what we're going to see is two of these go on into Sodom. You'll see that in the very next chapter, verse 1. They're identified as angels who go on into Sodom. But the third personage, this one who is called Yahweh, Stays behind and has a conversation in the rest of chapter 18 with Abraham. You remember where Abraham negotiates if there's this many righteous people, will you destroy the city? And, and you know, and when he's an no, oh, I'm not going to destroy it. Okay, what if there's a little less, fewer and fewer and fewer? He's talking with this one who is identified as Yahweh. But as we go into chapter 19, Yahweh disappears from the narrative. It's these two angels that go into Sodom, and I'm, I'm trusting that you know the story of all the stuff that went on and how they basically had to yank Lot and his family out of Sodom before the fire and brimstone fell on that city and consumed it. But did you notice what's going on here? That here now we have a personage appearing, this time not as a pillar, Of glory, but we have this one appearing as a human being who is tangible enough to eat, has feet that can be washed. Your head spinning? Well, if so, you're getting where I'm going here. Good. If your head is spinning, you're seeing the problem, and you're not going to solve the problem until you see the problem. Okay? How do we explain? all of this over and over in in Abraham's sons Jacob I'm going to cut some of the I know we just don't have time to look up all these verses but I'm assuming you folks you've been to Sunday school you know the stories you remember Jacob running from his brother Esau and he comes to a place called Bethel and he lays his head down on a stone and he has this dream Jacob's ladder, we call it, reaching to heaven. Who's at the top of that ladder? It's, it's the Lord. It's Yahweh who visits him there at Bethel as he is making his way to his uncle Laban's house. Later on, Jacob, as he's returning, uh, has another encounter. Uh, and it is when uh, he's about to leave his uncle Laban's place and once again, Yahweh, or the Lord appears to him, an angel comes with this message that I am the one that you saw at Bethel. Well, that one was Yahweh. But here it is an angel speaking to him who identifies himself as Yahweh. And if we come on up another 500 years now to the time of Moses, Moses one day is out with the sheep, you know, over there in Midian, and he sees this burning bush. And you remember he goes and suddenly there is a voice that is calling to him, speaking to him out of the bush. I'm really condensing this stuff, so I hope you're, you're with me. The text says it is an angel that spoke to him. And Stephen in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 7, will also mention that this was an angel that spoke to Moses out of the bush. And yet, if you listen, the angel speaks of as God in the first person. Remember Moses said, who are you? I've I've got to go back to Israel. You're telling me to lead these people out of Egypt and they're going to want to know who you are. They want to know your name. And what did this angel who is speaking in the first person as God, what does he say? Tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. We'll talk more about that, especially tomorrow afternoon. But notice this is where this Hebrew phrase, I am, is where we get the name Yahweh. That's what the word Yahweh means. The self existent God, the one who is. I don't know how else to put it. Words fail us here. So this is God speaking in the first person. Tell them my name. This is the name you're to convey. And yet, it's an angel speaking. Out of the bush. You see this particular angel. Over and over again. That keeps showing up. And later on we saw that God promised. He would send this angel. To help them go into the land of Canaan. But later when they got to do. The conquest of Canaan. You got Joshua one day. Remember he's leading the army now. He's out reconnoitering the, the situation. And he runs into this guy. With armor on. And basically uh, Joshua. He's a little bit intimidated by this warrior figure. Are you for us or against us? <laughs> Whose side are you on? And the, this figure says, neither. But I've come as the captain of the, Lord of, of the host of the Lord, of Yahweh. I am the general. I'm taking over the battle. And then he says, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. Just what Moses was told back at the burning bush when he was standing there in the presence of God. So that obviously there is intentional language being used here to connect the dots for us that this is just not some ordinary person or even an ordinary angel to stand in the presence of this angel as Joshua was doing is standing in the presence of God. And we are to revere this ground that I'm standing on in front of him as holy, just like Moses was told at the burning bush. And, of course, as you go through the history of Israel, you see these, this angel of the Lord showing up. Gideon, later on in the time of the Judges. The really interesting one to me is Manoah. Manoah was the father of Samson. And Manoah and his wife are out one day doing their business, and here comes this guy, and they're really not sure what in the world is, you know. The, his wife sees him first, and comes. It, you can sort of tell from the way the narrative goes, they're just not real sure who or what this person is. And recall that uh, he's coming to announce to them they're going to have a son, it's going to be Samson. And they go and they get a sacrifice. You remember? They have it on the rock, and this angel touches it with his staff and the scripture says does wondrously we use the word you know transformers the kids go and get the transform well he transforms and he goes up to heaven in the flame and Manoah says yeah that's an angel <laughs> even I can figure that out this is not a human being this is not a regular guy here he has made an appearance and they and you can sort of tell from the narrative they're not real sure who this guy is But now, okay, I get it. This was an angel. I've seen the face of God, and I'm going to die. Notice this theme that we've seen, that to see God's face means you're a goner. And his wife says, no, I don't think so, because I don't think he would have done this in the first place if he came here to kill you. But notice these recurring themes. Here is this person who appears... With this message, he's the angel, the malach, And yet, what are we dealing with here? So, I've spent all this time to give you a couple of ways of looking at this. And sometimes, when we see a visible expression of God, it's like the first text we looked at. It's the glory. The glory of God. That we see there at Moses' encounter or sometimes it's a human figure like showed up with Abraham and often though it's this angel the angel a particular angel the angel of the lord but there's more there's another phrase that we begin to run into that looks so awfully suspicious go to first samuel chapter 3 first samuel chapter 3 This is the story of Samuel with Eli. Remember in the temple? You remember how Samuel in the night hears God called his name? Remember that story? In verse 4, 1 Samuel 3, verse 4 that the Lord, notice the scalps, Yahweh, who's calling him? The Lord is. Yahweh calls Samuel. And he answered, here am I. And you know the story how he runs to Eli, thinking it's Eli calling for him. And three times this happens. And so the last time Eli says when that happens again, just say, here am I. I'm here for whatever you want. Here am I. Verse 9. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, go lie down. It shall be if he call thee that thou shalt say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. But listen to this. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, came and stood. In other words, this voice is here identified as the voice of Yahweh. And he comes and he stands and called as at other times. Samuel, Samuel. Strange? And then the last verse of this chapter, verse 21, And the Lord, Yahweh, appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord, Yahweh, revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And all of a sudden, we see yet another phrase here. That this mediator between God and man is now being identified to us as the word of the Lord. Uh, You're familiar with the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, where you find this phrase, the word of the Lord came to me and said. Isn't that strange language? You would think, wait a minute, the word came to me saying, no, the word of the Lord came to me and said, Uh, Look at Jeremiah. Here's an example. Jeremiah chapter 1. We see in verse 1. Let me let's skip to verse four, just for shortening. Jeremiah one. Then the word of the Lord Yahweh came unto me, saying, Okay. So you're saying, well, maybe you're reading too much into this. You can't really be meaning a personage. It's just a message. Oh, look at verse nine. Verse nine. Then the Lord Yahweh put forth his hand. And touch my mouth. You ever got a message that had a hand? Do <laughs> you see the sense here? Yeah, the word of the Lord is not a message, it's a person who is conveying a message. So we've had the glory of the Lord, we've had the angel of the Lord, here we have the word of the Lord, and then in Daniel chapter 7, we see even something perhaps even more strange, if you can get any stranger. Daniel chapter 7, if you know anything about Daniel's prophecy, you know there's these four beasts that are representing four empires or kingdoms that are going to arise on the earth. Daniel is in captivity in Babylon, that's animal number one, the lion, and it goes down finally to what is apparently the Roman Empire. So it's a prophecy of the coming empires, the kingdoms that are about to arise on the earth. So he watches as all four of these beasts appear, taking him down to the time of the Roman Empire. And then verse 9, Daniel 7, verse 9. The Jews say this is the most dangerous passage in the Old Testament. They did not encourage their people to read it. You tell me that, I want to read it. You know, it's like telling your kids, don't go in that closet. From then on, the desire, I don't want to see what's in that closet. Well, when you tell me I don't don't need to be reading it, they say it's too dangerous, it's too hard to understand. Well, I want to know what it says. Well, let's look at it. I began to realize why they didn't want their people reading this. Daniel 9, I'm sorry, 7, verse 9. After he's seen these four empires rise, that's the context, I beheld till the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days did sit whose garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure, pure wool, his throne like fire, fiery flame, I'm getting tongue-tied, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him, a thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, the books were open. In other words, you have this council, notice thrones, plural in verse 9, and who you have on the throne. Well, this is obviously a reference to God, okay? Then in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. We see these two figures in the heavens. The Ancient of Days and one like the Son of Man. And the Son of Man comes nigh to the Ancient of Days and there is given to him a kingdom that will never pass away. Y'all are way ahead of me. I think you know who this is is, don't you? Who called himself over and over again in the New Testament, the Son of Man? We'll get to that. I'm giving you, you know, since y'all are the bright ones and want to read ahead. Who do do you reckon this referred to? So here again, we see these two figures. We've seen it all the way through the Old Testament. Two figures uh, I don't want to say two Yahweh figures because I don't want to imply that we're talking about a three distinct godheads. Uh, The Jews who wrestled with these same things we're looking at were fierce monotheists. They believed in one God and that is correct. There is but one Yahweh. Correct? Correct? The Shema, it's a Hebrew word meaning "here." It's that Deuteronomy 6, 4 passage. "Here, O Israel. The Lord, our Lord. Yahweh, our Elohim, the generic word for God, is one Yahweh. Right? There's not more than one Yahweh. And yet, what have we been seeing here? In one sense, there's this Yahweh who cannot be seen. And yet, on the other hand, there's a manifestation of Yahweh that can be seen, that can be talked to, listened to, fed. The wheel's turning? Let Let me share with you a little bit of the background. We're almost through here of why I began this study in the first place is to realize that the rabbis in Israel, in Jesus' day, saw the same things we're seeing. In fact, they poured over the Old Testament. They studied every single word. If you read any of the rabbinical writings, it's amazing how much study they put and how much meaning they hung on every single word in the Old Testament. So they knew this is there. And it bothered them, especially that Daniel 7 passage and i am grateful to the pastor of our little church out in wyoming on a good sunday we'll have 20 people and uh, the pastor and his wife have five kids so half the church basically is his family if they if they ever have a fight we're going to have a church split <laughs> and uh, and then there's a uh, there's just a handful uh, But the guy, I love the guy, he would not be considered a uh, Calvin, he doesn't consider himself a Calvinist, let me put it that way. I accuse him of being a closet Calvinist, because honestly, you and I could sit in his mind, I've never heard anything that I disagreed with. I mean, he could preach in almost any circles I run into, and his messages would be well-received. So he's just a different breed of cat than I normally run into, but I just immediately was attracted to the church and to his ministry just because he handles the Word of God, expositional preaching, goes, preaches through books, and does a great job with it. So he's, he's a young guy, about 35 and, you know, I'm always thinking, well, I'm the old guy, the wise fella, and I'll be there to be able to give him a hand, you know, be able to help him through some of these problems. And, oh, my, how my hubris has been crushed. My pride popped uh, because, if anything, he has been a wonderful help to me. And he runs in just completely different circles where he went to Bible college up in Wisconsin and the groups that he's associated I don't know these people, never heard of them. And one day, as we were leaving church, he asked me, have you ever heard of a controversy among the Jews about the time of Christ called two powers in heaven? Two powers in heaven. That the Jews, a large number of Jews, held to that view that there were two powers in the heaven. Before Christ... It's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's found in the rabbinical writings before Jesus. And it lasted till after the Apostolic Age. But in the middle of the second century, they declared it heresy. And they excommunicated anybody who taught this idea that there were two powers in the heaven. What we saw in Daniel 7... And I said, no, I have never, ever heard of that. I thought I'd heard of everything, but no, that's new to me. But I'll look it up when I get home. Well, he had found it. If you're familiar with Michael Heiser, his ministry, Heiser mentions this in his book, The Unseen Realm, which is a really interesting reading. I got Unseen Realm and then noticed that his source was a fellow named Alan Siegel, and so I managed to find Alan Siegel's book, Two Powers in Heaven. It was his doctoral di- dissertation that he did at Yale back about 1977. It went out of print, but Baylor University, of all people, reprinted this book, which I'm glad they did. Now, it is, I don't really recommend it for you unless you're really ready for some tough sledding, because it is really difficult. And it consists, if you've ever read these Jews and their writings, it's Rabbi so-and-so says this and then Rabbi so-and-so says this. It's back and forth. All this esoteric language and hard to understand. But it's very valuable in that he documents that, yes, before the time of Christ, it was common among the Jews to refer to these two powers in heaven. You say, well, did they believe what we believe, that there was this other divine figure? Most of the time, no, that's not how they interpreted it. They would interpret it as, as, let's say, two different aspects, attributes of the one God. When they would see these two figures like they're in Daniel 7, they would say one represents God's mercy, the other represents his judgment. Sort of justice and grace, how do you the two sides, shall we say, of the divine character, they would see them as those two attributes. And personify. they say the scripture's personifying those, but they could never agree which one was which. You'll see one guy claiming it's this, and the other guy claiming it's this. Or they would say, well, when you have the Ancient of Days with white hair, that's the old one, which represents God's wisdom. He didn't talk about no hair. Or like, yeah, But <laughs> that's the old the wise one you see and then you have the son of man that's the young one who is full of vigor and power so here you have again the attributes of God his wisdom expressed by the ancient of days his might and power being expressed by the son of man so no they didn't view it as we would view it but they were wrestling with these terms and as I said they recommended to the Jews not to read this thing now Alan Siegel is a Jew And his book basically was trying to show that this thing had existed for about three centuries and that it was heresy from the very beginning. But I think he disproves his own thing. He would consider us heretics to believe in the Trinity. That's heresy in his view. But I think he disproves his own proposition that what he shows is that, no, this was an accepted view among Jews In Jesus' day to the middle of the second century when suddenly it is now denounced as heresy and you teach two powers in heaven, you get kicked out of the synagogue. Well, what changed? What happened? Christianity happened. Do you see how this played right into the hands of Christians? And that's what we're going to be looking at as we continue this study. That the Christians come along and say, you know that second power? There's the invisible one, and there's the visible one. Well, guess what? That visible expression of God that you see all the way through the Old Testament, either as the glory of God, the angel of God, this figure, that's who Jesus is. And so the Jews (laughs) began to pronounce this heresy. There was a guy, we don't know much, I mean, we don't hear much about him, but he was very famous during the time of Christ. He was born, oh, roughly 25 years before Christ, died about 50 A.D. His name was Philo of Alexandria. He is considered by the Jews to be the father of Hellenistic Judaism. That's Greek-speaking Judaism. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt which was a huge center of learning, Greek learning, and many Jews, and this is the other thing that blows our mind, there were more Jews living outside of Palestine at the time of Christ than were living in the land of Palestine. You've got these Jewish colonies all over the Mediterranean basin and a huge Jewish colony in Alexandria, and those Jews didn't speak Hebrew. The only place you speak Hebrew is back in Israel. They spoke Greek. They didn't know how to read Hebrew. So that's where about 200 BC, 200 years before the time of Christ, these scholars over there translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so they could read them. That's what we call the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. It's the Greek version. So here you have this Greek guy who was infatuated by Socrates and Plato, all that Greek philosophy, and he's trying to somehow blend the Hebrew understanding of things with the Greek understanding of things. Now, to cut to the chase, Philo of Alexandria also believed in these emanations that we talked about, and especially one emanation that he said it was that emanation by which God created the worlds. In other words, you have the agnoston, this, God, infinite God, invisible God, but he has this emanation, a visible emanation, who then creates the universe. I'm hoping John 1, 1 and 2 is going off in your mind as I'm saying this. Do you know what he called that emanation? Logos. The very word that John will use in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. By him were all things created that were made. Without him not was anything made. He called him. Let me get the list here. His other names. His primary one was Logos. Does that blow your mind? You got a Jewish guy. Over in Alexandria, using the very word that John is going to use to describe who Jesus is. He called him the beginning. He called him the ruler of angels. He called him Hashem, name of God. He called this emanation God's offspring. He called this emanation God's firstborn. Ever heard those terms before? And so what you begin to realize is that John is not pulling his language out of a vacuum. Now, I don't mean please don't understand that Philo somehow was a closet Christian and he's using no, no, no. He still has this Greek understanding. These are these are attributes as far as he's concerned. But it's fascinating to me that we find then in the New Testament, and we'll see this the New Testament writers employing the very terms that Philo is using of this emanation, of this second power. And you will find the Jews then denouncing as heresy the very thing that their hero, Philo, was teaching in Alexandria a century earlier. You teach that now, you get kicked out of the synagogue. But this is their hero, the father of Hellenistic Judaism. So in other words, the Jews themselves recognize something going on. Okay, so you say, Brother Mark, what? What does all this mean? Why, why are you wasting our time? I hope you don't feel like this is a waste of time. I hope you find this as fascinating as I have found it. It's just been a fascinating journey for me to rediscover some of these things and put some bits and pieces together, tie, follow the dots, you know, to link some of these things, these concepts that are there right before our eyes. How would you find this used? Well, number one is we will see that what we see in the New Testament is that this visible Yahweh showed up at Abraham's tent. This time appears in the New Testament not as the appearance of a man, but as a man who takes upon himself our nature. Who is a fertilized embryo in the womb of the virgin. Passes through the birth canal. To enter this world in a manger in Bethlehem. The son of God. This manifestation of Yahweh. That you can see. That you can touch. And this time he doesn't come temporarily as a man. You, you realize Jesus right now is a man. Now, he's God. He's the God-man. But remember Paul writing Timothy, there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, as he sits on the throne, he's still human. Fully human, fully divine in one person. But that's what the, the message of the New Testament is. That's who this is. Now you don't see him as a pillar, a cloud or a fire. Now you don't see him as this glowing cloud. Now you don't see him as an angel that you take off your feet if you get closer. Now he comes lowly, meek. Do you understand what this means about what Christ, how he humbled himself to come into this world? To lay aside, as it were, the perks of divinity, the the glory, he says in his high priestly prayer, Father, I'm coming back to get the glory that I have with you before the foundation of the world. He's laid that glory aside to come into this world lowly, meek. And now he's ascended to the throne of God as we see in that passage in Daniel 7. This second figure. Well, let me tell you an interesting little story I stumbled upon in studying this out. And it was of an early martyr of the Christian faith. His name was Justin. Are you all familiar with the guy, Justin Martyr? He had uh, he has a work that he wrote called his Dialogue with Trifo the Jew. It's still out there. You can find it on the Internet and read it for yourself. Check me out if I'm telling you right. Uh, the situation is this, that Justin was from, he was a Jew from the northern, well, Galilee area. And early on, he decided he wanted to be a philosopher, I guess it beats digging ditches, you know, if you can get a gig as a philosopher. So uh, he's going to be a philosopher, a Greek philosopher. So he begins to study all the noted philosophers to see who he wants to be a follower of. And none of them are satisfying. And the story is one day he encounters this old man, this old man uh, who says, well, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree, basically, that you you don't need to inquire of these human philosophers what you need to do is to inquire of the scriptures of the old testament the prophets who spoke by the word of god i guess this was news to find, uh, to justin he never had thought about that so he got a hold of the scriptures and he begins to study the and lo and behold guess what he becomes a christian so now he is going to become a christian philosopher We would call him today an apologist. Who's a good apologist today out there? I I can't think of them. James White. White. We had him in our church. You'd think I'd remember, but that's what happens. Uh, He was sort of a first century James White, or a second century James White. He's he's roughly, uh, the deal is he's on his way to Rome. And we don't call him Justin Martyr for nothing. He will get martyred in Rome. But he's on his way, and he got to as far as Ephesus, and he's waiting on a ship that will take him on to Rome. And while he's in Ephesus, he runs into this guy, Trifo, who is a Jew, also a philosopher. And Trifo has four or five other Jewish guys with him that are with him on the trip. And they're all stuck there in Ephesus for several days waiting on their ship to show up so that they can go on their journey to Rome. So while he's there in Ephesus, Justin and Trypho have this dialogue, this back and forth, each one of them asserting what they believe. And, of course, Justin is asserting the truths of Christianity and that Jesus is the Son of God. So... Uh, this goes on for several days as they're stuck there. And Justin then writes a sort of a journal of their discussion. It's just fascinating stuff. But the most fascinating to me is finally when Justin is trying to press his claims that Jesus is in fact God. He turns him to one of the pages that we have stumbled on. We didn't read that far. Back, uh, you got got a moment? Genesis 19, right quick. You remember that's when these three men show up at Abraham's tent? One of them, Yahweh. Other two angels go on to Sodom. You remember in Genesis 19, verse 1, the two angels go on into Sodom, but Yahweh disappears from the narrative. Well, Justin, in wanting to prove that Jesus was in fact God, quotes verse 24. And when I first looked at this verse, I said, Justin, of all the verses I would have gone to, that's the last one I would have picked. Until I looked at it closely. Verse 24. Then the Lord, got little caps? Yahweh. Reigned upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord, Yahweh, out of heaven. Let that sink in. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone, from the Lord in heaven. We see two figures identified as Yahweh one invisible, the one in heaven, and one visible, who has just appeared to Abraham. The fascinating thing is, one of those Jews who were there with trifles said, Oh, yeah. We've always seen two divine figures in that verse. In other words, he's saying he saw these two powers in heaven. Here you see an example of it. Two figures who are both identified as Yahweh. Philo then says, and I'm putting this in my words. He said, we can believe that Jesus came from heaven, was born. We can believe that he was a miracle worker. We can believe that he was a great teacher. But as he put it, we cannot allow that a crucified man bearing the last curse in the law you know what curse he's referring to? Curse it is everyone who hangs on a tree. We cannot allow, we can't go here with you, Justin, that a crucified man bearing the last curse of the law, dying so disgracefully, could be the Christ. Justin, we can go with you so far, but we cannot go there. And they still can't go there today. And you begin to get a glimpse of what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 1 as the offense of the cross. But that offense, that stumbling block to the Jews, is my hope and my glory that there was one who hung on a cross and was made a curse for me so that the blessing of Abraham might fall on me. That's how Paul describes the gospel. The very thing that repulses the Jew is the thing that draws me and attracts me to my Savior. That this is my hope. You take that away from me and I have no hope. You say, but aren't you a good person? Uh-uh. None good, no not One. Man, there's enough sin and error in every message I've ever preached, every prayer I've prayed to send me to hell. I need someone who can take my place, someone who's perfectly satisfying the law of God, who took my place and paid the penalty for my sin. That's what I need, and that's what the gospel presents to me. Well, this gets us started tonight. We'll pick up tomorrow. I hope you have been challenged. I hope you'll think through some of these things and study it for yourself. I have found it such a fascinating study. I just get, I think I'm seeing, well, I need to see a little glory. Because I'm, I'm giving away some of what we're looking at in the morning. But, uh, you know, Paul describes salvation. The God of this world has blinded their minds. It's hidden. What, what can't they see? This, what does he call it? The light of the glory of God. You say, oh, I wish I could see that glory. Wish I could have that vision. That they what happens? God who commanded light to shine in darkness, to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of who? Jesus Christ. You want to see that glory? Let me give you the perfect place to see it. It's in the face of this wonderful Savior. Father, let's let's pray. Father, help us to comprehend this amazing, amazing thing we see here in your word. And to realize what this means. That yes, it was our God who came down. In the person of his Son. Fully human yet fully divine. And lived the life that we could not live. And live and died the death that we could not afford to die. And he did it for us, his people. That people you had given him from the foundation of the world. Oh, Father, what a Savior. May we stand and marvel at this mystery. That you should love man. That you would care. We want to say With the psalmist, what are we? What is man if thou art mindful of him? Shake us to our very core of our being that our God thought upon us. Our Savior connoted, emptied himself, laid aside his glory to live among us and help us, Lord, to see that glory in his face. May we be astounded at what we see. Use this in our lives to convince, Lord, we who already trust you, we sing holy, 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 we confess this mystery, and yet may we be amazed. May we never get used to it. May it never be old hat. May it thrill our souls that our God came to rescue and save a sinful people and to take us to glory. Thank you for the time. May you bless the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.